How's everyone doing? Are you doing good? Doing good? You doing better than your bracket? Yeah? I hear it's a tough one this year. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, if we haven't met, my name is Carlos. If it's your first time to Evergreen, we're so glad you're here. If you're watching online for the first time, man, what an honor to spend uh, these moments with you. Um, I want to begin um, by actually um, talking about something that uh, is controversial, uh, talking about something that divides households and ends friendships. I don't feel like there's enough division in our country, and so I want to dive into something <laughs> that... Um, so... Um, I, I want to I go into a debate um, that, that really comes down to who is the greatest superhero of all time. Now, I know there's a lot of, of, of thoughts on this topic, but for the sake of simplicity, I've done the research and I've narrowed it down to two. And so it comes down to whether it's Superman or Batman. Superman or Batman. And so um, I am going to be the voice of reason today. I'm going to end this debate once and for all. This is going to be an absolute truth type answer because I've thought about it. I've done the research and I've come to an answer. Are you ready for it? The greatest superhero of all time is Batman. Yes, 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 yes. And there are probably... Plenty of other churches that believe otherwise, but this is a Batman church. I'm, but you can, you can, you're welcome as well, whatever, whatever you decide. But uh, there's a reason why I believe, and I want to make an argument for why Batman is the greatest superhero of all time. And, and I want to begin with a quote from a superhero theologian that I found on the internet this week. He or she uh, said this, uh, despite being... Superman's superior as a character, Batman actually does not possess a single superpower. That's right. The Cape Crusader's DC Comics' most intriguing hero ultimately has zero powers distinguishing him from the average individual, the average Joe. So get this. Batman's greatest, Batman's greatness lies in his lack of power. That's deep, huh? <laughs> we can close the service right there, and you will all be spiritually filled and nourished. Uh, but my translation to that is that Batman's greatness lies in his humanity, and that's what makes him great because he's one of us. Everyone say, one of us. <laughs> this is an average Joe defeating evil. And that's inspiring. That's inspirational. And that's why all of you should claim Batman as the greatest superhero <laughs> of all time. But there's only one issue, and that's this. Batman doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, know. I was like, am I ruining it for some parents? He is a fictional character. I'm sorry if you have to have a bigger conversation at home. Um, but we know that he is make-believe, and we as, as believers or as truth-seekers, as people who want to live um, in, in a, um, with wisdom and truth, we want to be inspired by nonfiction, right? We want to be inspired. Uh, we don't want to be inspired by a fictional character. And so today, um, I am not going to spend the rest of the time talking about Matman, 
okay? I know, bummer. But I am going to be talking about someone who isn't fiction. I'm going to be talking about a real man who lived in real history and changed um, real lives, and his, whose very existence not only changes uh, the past, but can change our right now and secures our tomorrow. I'm here to talk about who? Jesus. I want to talk to you about Jesus. May I talk about Jesus? I hope that's not surprising given that we are a church. <laughs> because we believe a few things about Jesus. Um, the first is we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We believe that Jesus is the second person in the Trinity. We believe that he was in the beginning and he will be there in the end. Uh, they, they call him the Alpha and the Omega. And because we believe these things about Jesus, we believe that Jesus is 100% fully God. But this same Jesus was also someone who was born of a woman, just like you and I, who had to learn how to walk and talk and hold his fork. Uh, he didn't require for us to do chopsticks. I don't know why we're still doing those things, right? I, I go to forks. Uh, just like you and I, uh, who spent his entire earthly existence in a body similar to ours. Think of this. Jesus existed in a body that got hungry, grew tired, and felt every human emotion that you and I potentially feel. And this is why Jesus, who is 100% God, simultaneously is 100% man. That is what we believe. And so much like Batman, Jesus should be admired for the life he lived while he was in a human body. And get this quote. It says, as much as we like to shout about his divinity, what makes Jesus relatable is his humanity. And so to study the life of Jesus, we get the clearest picture of God. And allows us to relate to God in a fresh and new way. But as I was thinking about that quote and I was reading through scripture, it actually occurred to me that the same reason why Jesus' humanity makes him relatable also makes him for some rejectable. Here's what I mean. Let's read in Mark 6. It says in Mark 6, the first three verses, the following. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. And so here is an incident where Jesus went back to the town where he grew up. But he wasn't alone. He brought his closest friends, the 12 students, his 12 disciples. And so the people that knew him the most, they began to say these things. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters, like, right there? They're with us? And then it says that they took offense at him. Here we are, a mixed bag of responses 
first of amazement, and then upon further reflection, many were offended by Jesus. And the New Living Translation translates that last verse as this, they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. And so here's my thought, is that Jesus' humanity, his knowability, his regularnessness, I think I just made up a word, was cause, was fuel, was reason for some to reject him, and I wonder if that still happens today. And so they must have thought, he is one of us. How could he be possibly anything more? We went to school with this dude. I packed his shot in fifth grade. I got a better grade than him in algebra. He is one of us. How could he be anything more? And so according to his hometown critics, Jesus was too human to save humanity. He was too human to save humanity. Yet, here was Jesus, who had lots of titles and could make lots of claims, but the one that he chose to identify most in the Gospels was this title found in Daniel called the Son of Man. We find that in scriptures, that is how Jesus referred to himself the most, as the Son of Man. And if when we read the, the meaning of that phrase, of that title, the simplest uh, definition is human being. Jesus went a great length to identify with our humanity. And we should wonder why. We should explore that. And so... Jesus is human, like us, and why does this matter? That's what we want to explore today, and that's what we're exploring in this series, because if Jesus was human, then he can relate to the experience that you and I are having in these human bodies, everything but not limited to our emotions, including everything but not limited to our emotions. This is why we're exploring the emotions of Jesus in this series, and we're asking ourselves, what can we learn from Jesus, the feeler? Jesus who felt emotions. And so last week, Ilsian uh, kicked off this series by exploring the emotion of compassion, and she reminded us and taught us that compassion sees, it listens, it moves towards, even when it means breaking cultural barriers, and it serves those in need. That is what compassion moves like and looks like in our lives. But this week, I actually want to go in slightly an opposite direction. I want to explore emotion that doesn't typically propel us outward into good deeds, but actually causes us to go inward, to isolate, to live with a shorter fuse, and limits our capacity to love others. The emotion I want to explore today is the emotion of being tired. Do you find yourself feeling tired today? 
Now, um, tired can mean so many things, um, and it's a word that can be a little fuzzy. And so I want to push back, um, I want to push beyond the tired that we feel when we do 10 burpees, right? <laughs> That's a tired, but I'm thinking about something more. Um, I want to push back that tired. Um, so I want to just uh, ask a few different questions um, and then just have you maybe think and reflect for yourself. So uh, do you feel like you can't get enough sleep? Do you feel like you can't get enough sleep? Do you live with a constant brain fog? Do you feel easily distracted or irritable? Do you find yourself doing things to escape but only drain your energy? Do you feel this undercurrent of anxiety that seems to linger? Now, I'm no medical doctor, so don't, don't think I'm going to give you a prescription after this. <laughs> I am not qualified to do that. Uh, but here's some questions that you might not hear in your clinical office. Uh, is, do you feel distant from yourself? Do you feel like you've maybe lost your focus on who you are or who you're meant to be? Do you feel like you are living from the surface of your life and not your core? And the last question is, do you feel distant from God? Now, if you said yes to uh, some of these things, if you've said yes to all of these things, um, first of all, I want you to know that you are not alone, but it sounds like we are more than just physically tired. What we are experiencing is a tired from the inside. I would go as far as say is that our souls are tired. And so the question really is, how many of you feel like you are tired from the inside? How many come today and you're saying, Carlos, my soul is tired? Well, you should know that Jesus experienced tiredness because he was human. And lucky for us, we can read about it and explore the way he managed this emotion in his life. And so we're going to be going into Mark 6, but before we do that, I just want to give you context as to what's happening in the Jesus story. In Mark 6, we see that Jesus sends his closest students, the 12 disciples, into their first missionary trip, and it is an absolute success. It says that he sends them off with very clear instructions as to what to do and not do, and their report is exciting. And that's what I want to pick back on in the Jesus story. So in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30, it says this, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him that they had what they had done, all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a what? Solitary place. And so we see here that the demands of life had picked up for not only Jesus, but for his disciples. 
And large crowds wanted to experience what Jesus and now his disciples were doing. And so in this moment, life was so busy that a meal was hard to come by. That's a busy life. And all involved in this situation, Jesus and his disciples would naturally get tired. Not only physically tired, but the tired that comes when we're caring for people like Jesus and the disciples were doing. And so Jesus not only must have felt this for himself, but he definitely felt it for his disciples. So he invites them into this practice that I want to dive into that he calls or we know as solitude. Everyone say solitude. Jesus um, invites them to get away with him, away from the crowds, and they do for a moment. Because if we continue to read the chapter, we see that the people are so desperate. They're so desperate to be around Jesus that they find Jesus and his disciples in this place that's supposed to be a deserted place. It's supposed to be a place where they could be alone and rest, but the people find them there. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, hey, I'm off the clock. Today's my Sabbath. I'm unavailable. No, Jesus, because of compassion, it says, he felt compassion for them. He actually begins to go into teaching. And then eventually, they're there for so long. And this place is so remote that the issue of how are they going to eat comes up. And this is where we get the famous story where Jesus takes a boy's lunch, three, three, uh, five loaves and two fish. And what does he do? He multiplies it. So that all not only get their full satisfied meal, but there's 12 baskets uh, of leftover. And so this is the context of what's happening. And as soon as that happens, verse 45 says this. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. Do you think Jesus has a goal here? Do you think he's driven? As soon as he could, he made the disciples get into the boat um, and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. This is an act of love and protection and care that Jesus is giving for his disciples in this moment. He is the buffer from this life of busyness. And it says that he handles the crowd. He does crowd management while his disciples get on the boat. But what does he then do in verse 46? After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. In other words, Jesus got what he always wanted. He got solitude. Jesus prioritized solitude. And so we see that Jesus had one determination in this very full uh, uh, moment in his life. He was determined to get alone with God, and his desires for his disciples was for them to do the same. Why? Because Jesus knew the toll the crowds would have, not only, not only on their physical bodies, but on their souls. He knew that if they kept this up, they would be soul tired. And this is why I want to suggest to you that the way Jesus treated tiredness was this practice of solitude. 
This was Jesus' remedy for the tired soul to get away alone with God often. And we know that this was part of Jesus' life rhythm because we actually read in Luke uh, verse 5, uh, 15 and 6, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 15 and 16, I'll just read 16, that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. In the gospel of Luke alone, there are nine references of Jesus doing this, where he would go away by himself in this practice of solitude. And so we know that when Jesus' life got busy, he got away We know that he often withdrew, but we also know that Jesus made time for people, didn't he? Jesus often withdrew, but he lived a very public life, didn't he? Jesus often withdrew, but he had deep relationships and community. He was able to balance both. And so we can assume that this was what Jesus did, that when Jesus matched his busyness with quietness. And I think maybe that's what we're experiencing is that the volume's really, really loud in culture. And the pace that we're running is really, really fast. And there's nothing that we're matching with that, that with. We're not slowing down. We're not getting quiet. And so... I want to dive into what this looks like, and I want to make sure we have a good understanding of what is solitude. And solitude, at its most basic idea, is getting alone with God. It is time that's intentional, focused, undistracted, and it's just you and your creator. Solitude is taking up Jesus on his invitation to come away with him. And it is so different than isolating or escaping. Because in isolation or escape, there's typically one person, maybe a device, a drug, or a bad habit. But in solitude, there's always two. It's you and God. And so John Mark Comer, the author of um, The Ruthless uh, Elimination of Hurry, wrote this, he said, in solitude, we're anything but alone. In fact, that's where many of us feel the most connection to God. And so if you want to talk about soul care, practice solitude. Jesus famously invites us in Matthew 28 to come to him. And he's speaking to all those who are weary and burdened, and the promises that he will give us rest. And I just want to highlight the fact that the invitation that Jesus gives is to himself. It's not to a religion. It's not to a set of ideas or philosophy or a different kind of morality that's different from the world. That's not... Jesus' invitation, Jesus is not inviting us to self-improvement. Jesus is not inviting us to something that's abstract like the universe. Jesus invites us to himself. 
And so the goal of solitude is to spend time with a person. And that's what makes all the difference. And so if we're going to be Jesus uh, followers of Jesus, or if you are exploring what it looks like to follow Jesus, then you should know that the goal of every follower of Jesus is to put into practice the things that he did. Amen? Yeah. And so I want to suggest today to make, fight for solitude to be a part of your regular life, of your weekly routine, daily, if possible. And so I want to ask you, how are you making space and dedicated time for attention and connection to God this week? And if you're already thinking the list of reasons why you cannot make that time, like, for example, Jesus didn't have a toddler, valid. (laughs) Jesus' kid didn't make the local soccer team. That's true. Jesus didn't work for your boss. I know, demanding. I get it. Jesus didn't have a small business to run. Jesus didn't have aging parents to care for. Jesus didn't live with your particular diagnosis. Those are all fair, and you are saying the truth. Jesus never lived through those specific things. But can you think of anyone else who had the types of demands on his life greater than Jesus? Let's keep this in mind. His endeavor was to save humanity. Here's what I'm trying to say. If Jesus found time for solitude, then so can we. And so the first task is simple. It's to identify a time and a place, a time where you can have undistracted time with God, whether that's early in the morning or it's a pause during your day or it's late in the evening or right before you go to bed. What matters is that you are identifying when it's going to happen. And unless you set apart a time, it's not just going to happen organically. We have to carve out that time. Because we live with something that uh, John Mark Homer calls the tyranny of the urgent. And what that means is that everything becomes urgent when we don't assign it a priority. And that is one of uh, the biggest obstacles of practicing solitude is when we live a lifestyle that everything is more urgent than your own soul. Once you've identified that time, then you want to identify the place where it's going to happen. And we all have different personalities, and we're all in different seasons of life and different work schedules. And so your place is going to look different. Um, It could be a reading chair by the window. It could be your kitchen table or your home office. Um, It could be a neighborhood park or a trail by where you live Um, It could be a local shop if it's not busy. Any place that works for you, free of distraction, preferably quiet, works. And that's the first task. Identify a time and a place. I can tell you where I'm going to be, at least where I plan to be, at 6.30 tomorrow morning. I'm going to be 
on the accent chair that the Renfro's gave us that's sitting right by the window next to the plants, and I'm going to have a cup of coffee in my hand, and it's going to be black coffee, no cream, no sugar. <laughs> Most likely, Ilsian's going to have brewed it because she always beats me, beats me to the punch because she's a love first spouse. And at 6.30, that is my planned time and place to connect with God. And that could look like me praying, me reading through scripture, whether it's a psalm or a gospel. It could look like me journaling my thoughts, my worries, my anxieties, and forming those into a prayer. It could be me just sitting in silence and hearing his voice. Whatever it looks like for you, the most important thing is that you not judge it, that you not try to perfect it, because the spiritual life, the way we are spiritually formed, it's not linear. It's not like all of a sudden we've mastered solitude or Sabbath or prayer or generosity. That is not, that is not the call. That is not the task. I've heard it described that uh, to practice solitude, this practice spiritual dis disciplines should be seen more as a spiral, where we continue to repeat, continue to commit, and as we continue that faithfully, authentically, we will find ourselves drawing closer and closer to the object, the goal, the intention of why we do these things, and that's a relationship with God. So I want to encourage you to name that time and place. And um, I also want to speak to the fact that if you are someone like me who can think of a lot of reasons why this is tough to fit in, I want to suggest to you that you are already doing something that's meant to be what you would get out of solitude. That you and I can fall into the habit of withdrawing in order to self-care. And what do I mean by that? Um, anytime we are spending meaningless time on our devices, anytime we are binging that next episode after episode, anytime we are practicing uh, the endless scroll, if you notice it never ends, there's no bottom. You know that was designed specifically. Anytime we are just... Um, uh, tinkering in our garage or putting those extra hours at work or we are committed ourselves to another thing, all of that are forms of withdrawing. And what we are doing is we are trying to draw out the noise with noise. We're trying to draw out the noise. And so what if we took one of those activities one of those efforts to withdraw, and we actually substituted them with this, with silence and solitude. And so the question that you can ask yourself is, what do you need to stop? I'm not asking you to add anything to your life. What can you stop and swap with quiet time with God? I believe that if we do this, what we will discover is more rest than work.
that we will experience not more doing, but more being with our Heavenly Father. And I believe that in doing this, life will become not less complicated, but more peaceful. And that is what Jesus wants for us. So I'm going to invite the band to come up, and I'm going to end with reading a verse that kind of wraps this all up, and it's found in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, and we're going to end with a song. It says this, you might be familiar with it, and it's speaking of Jesus, it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. The message translation of that is we do not have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. Jesus is in touch with your reality. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to tire. He knows what it's like to feel anxiety and depression. He felt those things. Jesus has experienced our experience. So can I remind you that we serve a God that not only does he hear us and loves us, but he's been there. We serve a God who knows what living in this world feels like. I heard it said um, that when we talk about Jesus or we we pray the Lord's Prayer and we say, uh, our Father who art in heaven, I think naturally our mind goes to the skies. We think of up there. But that word heaven, if you translate it, actually has to do more with the air around us. So think about that. Our Father who is always around us, always near, who knows us better than ourselves, makes an invitation through his son, Jesus Christ, to find rest, to find guidance for our souls. And so I'm gonna ask everyone to bow their heads as we pray. And you might be here today and you might be on this journey to find truth, to find help. Maybe you're here today or you're watching online and man, you are tired beyond explanation. You are in a season where rest is hard to come by. May I suggest that you give Jesus a try. May I suggest that you would invite him into your life. And I wanna give an opportunity for anyone here or anyone online who's never said yes to Jesus, never taken him up on that invitation, and you want to do that here today, we want to give you that opportunity. And so with every head bowed down, we're going to ask you to, if that's you today, if you want to make Jesus your Lord and Savior, then you can look up at me, and we're not going to ask you to come up. We're just going to pray together. We're going to agree I'm going to stand here on stage. I'm going to just agree with your faith decision today. So if you are here or you're online, you can type in uh, yes to Jesus. But you can look up at me. I just want to be able to acknowledge your faith and pray with you. If there's anyone here 
that wants to say yes to Jesus for the first time, then you can look up at me. We will pray. God knows your heart. He knows what you're going through. And he wants to walk alongside you. Father, we pray for everyone in the room, watching online. God, would we learn to get away with you? Would we learn to practice intentional time where we are nourished and refreshed in you, not the things that we think will bring us satisfaction, not the things that deplete us, but help us to constantly go to you for the deepest needs that we have. I pray for everyone in the room that this week would be a restart to spending time with you, that we would reap the benefits of what it looks like to live like your son. We want to live like he lived. Help us to do that here today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.